Well, we're thankful this morning to have uh, Brother Kevin Williams with us from Manchester, England, and uh, we have known Kevin for a while now from the internet and uh, from email, and uh, we're grateful to have him with us here this morning to share with us from the Word of God. So, Brother, come on up. Good morning. If we open our Bibles to Genesis 2, please. It's a great privilege and very humbling for me to be here and fellowship with you all. Last week in Sedalia, Clint Leiter asked me... um, do I get nervous when I open a preach in the street? And I said, well, not so much in the street, but I get nervous when I preach in your pulpit in Sedalia. <laughs> and Clint said, ah, oh, that's nothing. Wait till you get to Kirksville. <laughs> and, and last night I cried out to the Lord and I said, Lord, I'm terrified. <laughs> but he says, I am with you. Okay, if we read from verse 1, I'm going to try and take the whole chapter, but I'll just read parts for now. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. And if we go down to verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded The man saying of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help me for him. And if we go to verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Father, you are in this place, Lord. You are with us always to the very end of the age, Lord. 
And yet there are some people in here, Father, who don't realize that you are here, who don't realize how much you love them, Lord, and that you died for them. Oh, Lord, that you would give them eyes to see, that you would open their eyes this day to realize these great truths. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, many wonderful sermons on marriage and creation have been preached from these verses here. But I I don't believe any of those things are the primary meaning of these texts. Because the primary meaning of every passage of scripture throughout the Bible, the central theme of this Bible is Jesus Christ. In John 17.3, Jesus said, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Eternal life, true life, is knowing God through the person of Jesus Christ. And I would ask you this morning, do you know him? Not just know about him, but know him. You see, so often I find when... New people come amongst very godly Christians like we have here. They realize that the people around them, they have a, a closeness to God. They, ha- they just sense that these people really do know Jesus. But what tends to happen a lot of times, instead of thinking, well, I don't have that. What they try and do, they think they have a checkbox of salvation things. You know, like, well, I believe the doctrines of grace. I believe Jesus died on a cross. And so they just use knowing Jesus as another tick box. They think, well, if knowing, if eternal life is knowing Jesus Christ, then I need to learn to talk like they do too. But God does not want us to pretend to be something we are not. He wants to... He wants us to come to him and truly know him. And all of the scriptures are a revelation of God to man. They are a revelation of Jesus Christ to mankind. In John 5.39, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. And he says, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. Now, the Pharisees, they were very religious. They were very zealous in their worship. They memorized much of the Bible. That They did all these rituals and they thought, and they did so much Bible study. And by that, they thought that that gave them eternal life. But they missed the one, in all their study, they missed the one who these scriptures were about. Jesus said, and they are they which testify of me. And what I want to encourage you is that wherever you are reading in scripture, to look for the person of Jesus Christ. And in John five forty six, Jesus said, for, have, for had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me. For he wrote of rituals and sacrificial systems and laws and history. That's not what he said, is it? He said, for he wrote of me. Now, of course, Moses did write of all those things. But as we're told in the New Testament, they were all 
pictures and shadows to teach us something about Jesus Christ. And in John 1.14, it says, And the word was made flesh. The eternal word of God, who is Jesus Christ, became humanity and dwelt among us. You see, God is not distant and unknowable like the false Muslim God of Allah. But he became one of us. And for many years of my life, I spent time in a church where God was always a distant deity to me. I knew there was something else. I thought I was a Christian then, but I knew there was something else which I didn't have. And that was Jesus Christ. And in Luke 24, verse 27... When the disciples, after the resurrection of Jesus, they had that seven or eight mile walk on the, the Emmaus road. And Jesus gave them a Bible study. It says there, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures, the things concerning covenant theology. Is that what he said? No, but you'd think so, wouldn't you? He said the things concerning himself. And in verse 32 of Luke 24, it it says, And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while we talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures? Now, why did their hearts burn within them? Because Jesus, he was revealing to them about himself. And brethren, We can look at great and helpful things like Calvinism, eschatology, but unless Jesus Christ is central in what we look at, then our heart will not burn within us. But every time you get a glimpse of Jesus Christ in the scripture, that is what happens. Your heartbeat skips faster. And so as we look at Genesis 2 now, I want us to look at Jesus Christ in this passage because Often with the book of Genesis and the arguments against evolution and things like that. And I'm not knocking any studies people do on that. But so often they turn it into an academic paper and the person of Jesus Christ is missed. So if we read here Genesis, 1 to, uh, Genesis 2 verses 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. So the first thing I want you to notice here from this passage is this is a continual day. In the creation of the world in six days in Genesis 1, at the end of each day, we read the words, and the evening and the morning were the first day, and the evening and the morning were the second day, and so on, and you get to the sixth day, but here, notice on the seventh day, we see no evening and a morning. Now, I am not arguing against a six-day creation here, but I don't think that is the primary meaning of this passage. You see, the Sabbath rest here is a continual day. You see, God did not 
create the world in six days, have a day off, and then go back to work on the, on the first day of the next week. You see, the Sabbath rest day is a picture of the perfect finished work of Jesus Christ that he would do 2,000 years later on the cross. In Matthew 12, 8, Jesus told us, For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. And in Colossians 2.16, we are told that the Sabbath is a shadow of things to come. And the substance of it is Jesus Christ. It's all a picture of the rest a believer gets in Jesus Christ. You see, when it says in verse 3 though, God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that's in it. He had rested from all his work. Now, God didn't. He's not creating a creation ordinance here, I don't think, as many people teach today. He's not giving the Sabbath commandment here because he's not telling us that you need one day a week rest because, or like some say, where you have six days to yourself and then you worship God for one day a week. You see, I mean, to start with, Adam before the fall, did he need a day of rest? You know, he didn't sweat. And you you see, this is the continual rest of Jesus Christ here on the cross. You see, after the fall of man, man was eternally separated from God. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is non-righteous, no, not even one. And before I became a Christian... Before I entered into the Sabbath rest of Jesus Christ, I spent many years of my life in complete rebellion to God. I spent many years of my life even where I went to church on a Sunday. This was for about six years. On the Saturday nights, I was doing things I knew I shouldn't have been doing. And I I thought nothing of it. But you see, I never knew God then. I never had his salvation. But you see... The Sabbath rest is available for us all to enter into. God's finished work on the cross is very good. His life, death and resurrection, the the atonement of Christ is perfect. On the cross 2,000 years ago, when Jesus paid for our sins, he said the words to Talestai, paid in full. So there is nothing left to pay. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we are told of the, the great exchange there, where it says, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. So Christ, who knew no sin, all my sin, all your sin, was placed upon Jesus Christ, upon that cross. Now, if you think... What it feels like when you're accused of something you haven't done. How horrible. And we've all been accused of things we haven't done. Now, but when we get accused of things we haven't done, you can always put something in its place that we have done and we've got away with it. But with Jesus Christ, it was different. He really was perfect. But our sin was placed upon him and in return we get his righteous life. It's what theologians call the great exchange. All the penalty for our sin, all the shame of our sin, all the condemnation of our sin was placed upon Jesus on that cross. 
And in exchange, those who believe in him, those who submit to that, those who see that, get the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so you can take, from the moment someone turns their life over to Jesus Christ, God looks at the believer with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So you can look at all those verses that apply to Jesus. When God looks down from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If you're trusting in his son, then if you're having a bad day, how's God looking at you? He looks down from heaven and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. You see, all we need to do now to have a, for sinful man to be reconciled to a holy God and have a perfect standing before God is to, by faith, enter into the, this Sabbath, this continual rest of Jesus Christ. Now, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, notice there. Jesus does not say, all you who are laboring and heavy laden, all you are weighed down with your sin, Jesus does not say, if that's how you feel, then you must go and labor on. You must clean up your life a bit more, and then you can come to me, and I'll accept you. That's not what he says. He says, come unto me. He says, come to me right now, just as you are, and I will give you rest. And so in verse 4 and 5 here, it says, These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew. And the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was not a man to till the ground. Before man was made here, notice that creation was working fine. In the next verse it says that God watered it. And God does not need us. We, we are privileged to know him. Nor does God owe us anything. You know, I used to, when I read this, first read the story of Absalom in 2 Kings 18, I think it is. And I, I read about Absalom just chasing after David and persecute him and he wants to kill him and kill him to take his throne. And I, I used to, and I, I was gripped by it. And then I read when Absalom's finally died, when he was caught in the tree and, and then he was killed. And I read David's reaction. And he said the Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, if only I could have died instead of you. And I, I used to read this from the wrong perspective. You see, I used to think, I used to put myself in David's shoes. And I used to think, how can he show such love as this? You know, this guy has tried to kill him all his life. He's chased after him. He's just one persecution after another. How can this man David show him so much love? And then one day the Lord told it, turned it around on me and he says, you're not David, you're Absalom. You know, but the difference is, 
the one who David was a picture of, Jesus Christ, he looks over us and he says this, the same thing. Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, if only I could have died instead of you. Except the difference was, he really did die instead of us. And, and also, in this verse, with God really owing us nothing. So often I, I get the objection of people ask me, why is there so much evil in the world? What about, if there's a God, why is there murderers and rapists? And so, which I always tell that person, well, you agree then. If there's a God, he should punish evil people. And they say, yes, Absolutely. So then I'll, I'll say to them, I'll use the, and it's something like the analogy I did with the track with, I did with Garrett. You know, if your thought life was on television, what would it show about your heart? What would it reveal about your heart? You see, sometimes we get this wrong picture of Christianity that we are wicked before God. And then he saves us in our sin and not from our sin. But you see, when God saves a person, he also changes that person. You see, so I would ask you as a Christian also, or a professing Christian, the same question. If your heart was exposed, what would it show? Would it show a a radical transformation in there? Because Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. You see, Paul told us to take captive of every thought. You know, we're not supposed to toy with sin. We're not, we must just destroy sin with a holy violence. Just cut, cut it off. And the answer is always looking to Jesus Christ. He is the one we go to for spiritual growth. As I've used this example often that, Sometimes we have this view today where people, they just go over, I don't want to do this sin, don't want to do this sin, don't want to do this sin. And, it's, and the more they do it, the more it stirs up sin. But we become more holy by looking at the person of Jesus Christ and, and knowing him and knowing his presence. The example I use is, if I tell you, stop thinking of tarantulas, stop thinking of tarantulas crawling over your face. Now, what's the first thing you think of? <laughs> but if I, if I say to you, think of the most beautiful sunset and just the beach and, you know, the great view, you've stopped thinking of tarantulas. And it's the same with Jesus Christ. The more you, you think of sin, the more you only stir it up. The more you think of Christ, you, you don't really want to do simple things, sinful things when your conscience when you're conscious of the presence of Christ with you. So that's who we must seek after. So if we read verse 6. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Here we see that God waters the ground. Now what is this a picture of? If it's about Christ, then I, th- I believe this is the picture of the living water that Jesus will water our hearts with. And whereas 
Whereas God here, he waters the ground with a mist. Jesus, when we come to know him, he floods our hearts with rivers of living water. And, and this, I think, is the backdrop. You see, before the fall, we had nothing to compare this with. You see, the, the love of God is magnified in that whilst we were sinners, Christ died for us. You know, Adam, God pouring out his love on Adam here, it doesn't seem as significant as God, because Adam had never sinned at this point. Well, he'd not been created at this point, but he's about to be. But, but once we realize that God loves us, even though we are sinful, wicked, and God still holds out his bleeding hands to us anyway. And you see, Jesus came to give us life abundant. He came to give us true life. And what is your life? For anyone who, who is not sure where they are with God. Or doesn't know Christ. You see the book of James says. Your life is a vapor. It's like a puff of steam. It's here one moment and then it's gone. You know. I mean. If you think. If, if someone achieves everything in this life. If someone achieves. Say the most famous sportsman. In this life. Okay. Who will care. In a hundred or two two hundred years' time that they even lived, apart from some really boring trivia guy. <laughs> but my point is that most people live a life that is just practically worthless. But Jesus offers us a life with a purpose that lasts for all eternity. You know, this life is short. We must live. With eternity in our hearts, we must ask, ask the Lord to teach us to number our days, to, to live in the light, because everything we do in this life matters for eternity. Every single thought, every single action, everything we do will make a difference for eternity. And our life is, is so short here. You know, when the Bible says, teach us to number our days... Guess what? That means our days are numbered. But we don't know when they are. So, we must try to live each day as if Jesus is coming back that day. And to seek him first. Now in verse 7 here, we read, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. Man, we are told here, is but dust. As the psalmist said, what is man that we are mindful of him? What is man that we fear and give reverence to his ways? Which are in opposition to God and just worthless ways. Read in Psalm 1. A few weeks ago, I've only noticed this for the first time. Where you see there, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight. And I've only, I only noticed reading it recently that there are no imperatives. There are no commands in that, in that psalm. Now there is great instruction for us there. But God is not simply telling us to do anything. It is simply a description 
of a saved person and a lost person. The blessed man doesn't walk in the counsel of this world. He doesn't stand in the way of sin. Whereas the lost man is like chaff. He's like the wind. Temptation comes and he just blows away. So we should not fear man. We we should fear God alone and give reverence to him. And also from this verse 7 here, we are totally dependent upon God for our very next breath. So many people think they can play games with God. They know that this book is all true. But they think, I'll I'll enjoy sin a bit more and then maybe I'll, I'll get right with God at a later date. Folks, as we've just heard this morning, today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. So many people think that. And they, then they fail to get right with God. And, and notice here also that the Spirit, it's the Spirit that gives life. It is the Spirit that salvation is a supernatural work of God. And you see, but many people today, the Bible also teaches man's responsibility. Many people who are in Christian backgrounds today, they hide behind hyper-Calvinism. Saying, well, I'd like to come to God, but I don't know if I'm elect or not. Now, do you see what that's doing? That's putting the blame on God. As if they would really want to come to God and be saved, but God is being this big meaner. You see, Jesus said, you will not come to me that you might have life. He also said, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Anyone who goes to Jesus Christ, he will save. You know, he said, if any man comes to me, he can drink. You know, he who comes to him, he will in no wise cast out. If I was to ask you, what is your name? And you said, my name's Stephen. And you said, and I said, I don't believe you. What's your name? And I said, and he said, my name's Stephen. I said, I don't believe you. What's your name? And he says, my name's Stephen. And I said, where do you live? And he said, Kirksville. And he says, I don't believe. And I said, I don't believe you. And I said, what, where do you live? And he said, Kirksville. And I kept doing that. Now, if that was you, what would you get? Would that wind you up a little? <laughs> now, now, why? Because I'm accusing you of lying, yeah? yeah? Yeah. Now, when Jesus says, he who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. When we don't believe that, what, what are we doing? Yeah. We're accusing God, who cannot lie, of being a liar. You know, and it's the same for a believer. When we fail to take the promises of God, what we're doing, we're accusing God of being a liar. As Leonard Ravenhill once said, one of these days, someone's going to really believe the Bible and put us all to shame. And verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And this... 
I think, is a picture. God puts the man in paradise here to live with him. That is what life is about. That is what true life is about, living with God, knowing him. And also, this is all a picture of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who God put in paradise here to live with the woman, his bride, whom he's about to create here. And that's us. And do you realize that the eternal God, you know, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they dwell in perfect union with each other for all eternity. And then when God created this universe, and he became one of us, he, he didn't become one of us to a, a later date to go back to the Father and, and, the, and the Holy Spirit and just leave us. Yeah, he came to know us forever, to be to be a man forever, to be with us forever. And also, if we read verse nine. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So, we see here, God is the one who causes to grow. God is the one who gives life. If you are not with God today, then you, you go to him. He wants to give you life. In the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, I think it's about verse 2, where the Song of Solomon, I believe, is a picture, it's an allegory of the love of Jesus Christ he has for his bride, his church, us. And it says there, Behold, I come leaping upon the mountains. You know, that is how God comes to us. You know, he died for us on a cross. And if you will, will come to him now, he's not stood there with his arms folded and saying, you know, oh, well, you've done all these things wrong in your life. How do you expect me to accept you? You've rebelled for so many years. Are you expecting even more grace? That's not what God does. He, the picture the Song of Solomon gives is he cometh leaping, across, skipping across the mountains to you with his eyes, with his hands open wide, saying, look at my hands, like he did to Stephen, saying, this is how much I love you. Put, you, put your hand in my side. If you don't believe how much I love you, just reach here. You know, this is how much I love you. And we see this in the New Testament, the parable that Jesus told. With the prodigal son, when he says, I will arise and go to my father. It says when his father saw him from a great way off, he, he ran to him and fell on his neck and kissed him. Oh, Lord. But from this verse, also, everything that God causes to grow, notice is good. When we do something bad... It's not because of God. But everything good someone does, it's always because of God. And, uh, and also in this, we see the two trees. Jesus, there are two ways to live. We either follow Jesus or we go in the opposite direction to him. Now, whilst it's true, you don't clean up your life and then go to Jesus Christ. 
you go to him just as you are. But it's also true that you cannot go to Jesus holding on to sin. When Jesus went to the rich young ruler, that guy, the rich young ruler, would have happily prayed a prayer. He would have gone to the front at an altar call, but he would not give up the idol in his life. Now, many people say, I try to come to Jesus Christ, but I just can't. And what they're doing there, they're saying, Lord, I want you to save me, but Lord, I'm not willing to let go of this idol in my life. This is non-negotiable. You see, the terms of coming to Christ are unconditional surrender. He has given his all for us, and he wants all of us in return. He wants all of our life. He doesn't just want a part of us. You know, those who just give Jesus a part of them, Jesus says in the book of Revelation that they make him puke. He will spew them out of their mouth. Jesus wants all of us. To, to all of our lives to come to him. But to all those who just rise up and follow him, he embraces, he changes, he just casts his everlasting love upon every single one of those. Now, if we read verse 10. And the river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted, and it became four heads. I'll go over this quickly for time to get to the end. The Eden of Christ, I believe, this is all a picture of his church. And we are to water the souls of lost people. We are to be refreshing to other people's souls to to come out to. And then in verse 11 and 12 we read, And the name... Of the first is Pison, the first river, that is it, which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of the land is good, there is Bedellium and the Oxystone. So, as we see here in the lands surrounding Eden, as we go into the world, as we go out of his church into the world, we see precious metals here, gold. You know, I believe this is a picture of how much God loves souls. You know, we need, we need to ask God to help us to love souls like Jesus did. To, because he died for them, for people all around us. And look, also, if you're a believer, that's how God sees you, as precious as gold here. And also from... Ten, 10 to 14 here where we see the rivers going out to the places of the world. I believe this is all ultimately a picture of Christ and his church going out, making a, a people from all nations here. And in, in verse 15, we are told, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and keep it. Here we see that man has responsibility, that we are given responsibility to live for Jesus Christ, to keep this world, to keep our souls. We are given a responsibility to live for him. And as the Bible says, notice pre-fall here, his commandments are not burdensome. And it's the same when we come into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. I'll go through these quickly for 
time, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. And notice the liberty here that God gives us in Christ. Christ is the heir of all things. You come to him, without Christ you have nothing. Everything you have will be taken away from you. You come to Christ and you are the heir of everything. You know, you look at the beautiful sunset, the, the beautiful sky. If you're in Christ, you own it. And verse, and verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day thou, that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And I want you to notice here that God clearly tells us what is right and wrong. He gives us both the word of God and he gives us our conscience. Of So man, like Romans says, is without excuse. And brethren, we only sin... When we deceive ourselves. The Bible says sin is a deceiver. It lies to us. And it's the same as on in chapter 3 when Satan lies to them. He tells them basically God's counsel is not the best for you. You must do things on your own. You must come this way instead. And then you'll be better off. And we only sin when we believe Satan's lie over God's, over God's truth. You know, we must, like God said to Cain, sin is crouching at the door and desiring to have you. You know, so often we, we, we can play with sin and think it's harmless. But that's not the picture the Bible gives. It gives the picture of this filthy snake that is just waiting to pounce on us. So we must not play in any, in any way. And then verse 18 here. And the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make and help meet for him. And what is this a picture of? I think the man here, of course, is a picture of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And for all eternity, God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit had perfect unity with one another. Then Jesus became one of us. They still had this unity. And then on the cross, Jesus was forsaken by his father. And this, it is not good for man to be alone. It is not good for man to be without God. And I think also that when Jesus Christ, when he became one of us, you see, it wasn't as if Jesus needed to create us. It wasn't as if he was lonely in, in, um, in eternity before he created us. But when he became one of us, he was made to have fellowship with his bride. You see, and I think we can take this, that it's not good for Jesus to be without his bride. You see, that is how much he loves us. You know, he... He just bids us to, to come, to come to him and have life. I mean, I heard um, Brother Garrett's sermon the, a few weeks ago on the podcast where he talks about in Zephaniah 3.17 where God sings over us. 
I mean, can, can, can you imagine that? I mean, I had, to, I, I had to read that a few times and think, it surely can't mean what it says. You know, I mean, God's up there in heaven. I mean, we, we get joy, don't we, when we sing about God. And God's up there in heaven. You know, saying, Mona loves me, this I know. For my Jesus tells me so. Little ones to him, to him belong, to me belong. They are weak, but I am strong. But it's just, just the most amazing truth that God loves. It's just, just unbelievable. And then if we read, if we skip to verse 21 here. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. Now, as I said, I believe all the Bible is a picture of Jesus Christ. And I believe this is ultimately a picture of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And notice his bride is created from the man. And we are created by the word of God, by the gospel. You know, it's here in the gospel, it's revelation of Jesus Christ that can converts people, here in the word of Christ. And we must always remember this when we share our faith. We won't convert people by arguing back and forth about creation and evolution or whether the Quran's false and the Bible's true and, and so forth. It is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. I heard a great analogy by um, Paul Washer. And he spoke, spoke about how ridiculous the gospel was to believe in the first century AD. He said, can you imagine witnessing in the first century when, you know, you, you go and tell someone that, that you found God. Now already you've got a problem because you're saying there's one God and they have millions of God. Then you say God became a man. Now, according to their thought, God couldn't do that. He was spirit and, and flesh was evil. Then you say, God is a Jew, the most despised nation on earth. Not only that, he's a Nazarite, the despised of the despised. Then you say he's crucified. Now, cursed is, if he's a Jew you're witnessing to, then cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. But even if he's a Gentile, I mean, they didn't have crosses in churches or crosses on necklaces and things in those days. You see, the cross was a real instrument of torture there. The equivalent of telling someone about the cross in the first century would be, can you imagine if you went door to door witnessing to people in Kirksville and you knocked on a door and they, well, they open the door and you see a picture on the wall and there's a man in an electric chair. And then you look on the other side and there's a man, a picture of a man with lethal injection. You look down the hall and you see this noose hanging. I mean, you'd run out of that house as fast as you could. <laughs> but you see, Paul Wash's point was that only a supernatural work of God could make someone believe a message like the gospel. And it's, and it's the same today. This, this is the message we must preach. And so verse 22. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And ultimately I believe this is a picture of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. 
As Jesus said in John 6.37, all that the Father giveth me will come to me. God the Father brings us to, to the bride here, to, to Jesus Christ. And, and Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And again, I believe this is a picture of the second Adam, ultimately Jesus Christ. And this, when you believe on him, this is how he sees you. He says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You are part of me now. You're you're at one with me. This is how Jesus sees us. And verse 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall become one flesh. So what's this a picture of? I believe ultimately that God, Jesus, the son, leaving his father in heaven and going, coming to be with his bride, that's us. And he cleaves to us. That he will be one with us. And then... To finish up here. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, I never really got this verse for many years. And the reason I never got it, because I was never looking for Christ in it. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. All our sin is naked and open before God. And he is not ashamed to dwell with us. And we are not ashamed to be in his presence. You know, it says in Revelation that on the final day, the books will be opened. And I believe the books there, there's, there's books plural. I believe the books are the, well, one is definitely, we are told, is all our works. Every wicked thought, every sin we've ever done. And next to that is the Bible, the word of God. Because Jesus said in John 12, about John 12, 48, I think it is, that this same word of God is what the standing we'll be judged by on that day. So those books will be opened and the book of life is also there. But when Jesus Christ, when he lifts up a book with every wicked thought, And every wicked deed we've ever done on that last day. Do you realize, believer, when you see that book lifted up in front of you, you're going to see hands with holes in that was pierced for every every sin that's written in that book. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your amazing love. How can it be? That thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Oh, Lord, I thank you for such a faithful witness in this church, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would take this word, Father, to just help your saints here know more of your love. To just live in the land of your faithfulness, Father. And I pray for any people who don't know. You this day, Lord, that you that you just that you would reveal yourself to them now, Lord, as you are in this place, that they would see you, Father. That you would open their eyes and they would see you say, come to me. 
and you would embrace them, Father, as you do to everyone who comes to you. I thank you that you are the giver of life. In Jesus' name, amen. If there's one lesson we ought to go away with, it is that Christ is the theme of the Bible. Listen to this. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now that's quoted from Genesis, but it's in Ephesians 5. The next verse, Paul speaking here. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Who says that? Let me give you just one more, one that Kevin quoted early on in his message. He says this, Therefore let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to or is of Christ. Substances of Christ. These things. What things? Well, everything you read in the Old Testament about food laws and drink laws, everything you read about festivals and new moon celebrations and Sabbath day, those things are Christ. They're referring to Christ. So if we go back and we study the Sabbath and we don't come away learning about Christ, we've missed everything God was saying. If you study the uh, laws about uh, clean and unclean and about food and drink or about the new moons and all those festivals, every one of those things referring to Christ. A lot of times we don't know how they all exactly fit together, but we know that in the end they refer to Christ. So... Uh, Praise the Lord for uh, speaking to us and revealing to us His Son. <clears throat> we were talking yesterday in the theology study about the unifying principle of the Bible. And uh, some say, well, it's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God unifies everything. Well, the kingdom of God's not the big thing, the big thing's Christ. He unifies everything. He's the one that makes sense out of everything that is given to us in the Bible. Well, amen. Let's be dismissed and continue our fellowship together in the mealtime.